Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. So today we have a very interesting guest. You know, he's been actually tackling, you know, the, the problem that he's solving from many different angles for the past 10 years with different companies. I think that we're going to be learning a lot. We're going to be learning about building, scaling, financing, all of the good stuff that we like to hear on the show. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Joey Levy, welcome to the show. It's good to be on. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Florida, so not far away from Miami. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Sure. Um, yeah, so born and raised in South Florida in, in Broward County, which is just north of, of Miami. And yeah, enjoyed enjoyed being raised down here. I'm, I'm back, you know, basically at, at home now. But growing up as a kid, I never thought you could be a technology entrepreneur in, in Miami. So it's great to see some of the recent developments around Miami, you know, becoming a tech hub. And there's a ton of work to do on that front, but it's trending in the right direction. Um, ended up moving to New York when I was 18 years old to go to college at Columbia University. During my sophomore year, I started my first business. And where did that, where did that uh, drive, you know, for entrepreneurship come from? Did you have anyone in in the family or anything, you know, happening there around you in Florida that, that got you this book right away or what, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say if I were to identify a family member, my, my grandfather was like a, you know, businessman and very entrepreneurial and, um, was certainly an inspiring figure for me. Um, but I think like the, 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 the primary source of it was, you know, I, I started working when I was like 14 or 15 years old. I had like a tutoring business. I, you know, worked at a sandwich shop. I did like all this other type of stuff, these random gigs. And um, because really, I just, for whatever reason, I don't even know the, you know, maybe because I was like arguing with my mom as a kid or whatever. And I always wanted to have independence, right? I always wanted to make money so that I wasn't beholden to anybody. Um, so that was just something that came um, to me from a very, very young age, um, having been working since I was like 14 or, or 15. And um, 
and and sort of got the creative juices flowing. And and when I started in in college, my you know I didn't I didn't start university thinking that I was going to be a technology entrepreneur. I was a history major focused on 19th century American history, and the reason why I did that was because. I was good at history and I thought it was a good thing to study because you read a lot and you write a lot and you analyze a lot. But the primary reason why I did that, to be honest, was because I didn't come from a lot of money. And I thought that, and the reason why I wanted to go to an Ivy League school in the first place was because I would go on all these Wikipedia pages and see like these successful political leaders and business leaders. And the one common denominator I saw was a lot of them went to Ivy League school. So when I was young, you know, a freshman or sophomore in high school, I'm like, okay, I just got to get into an Ivy League school. And then step two is get into the Ivy League school and get as high of a GPA as you could possibly get and then get a job at like Goldman Sachs or something like that. And you could start your life with a six figure income and then sort of figure out what you actually like to do from there. So when I started college, I was focused on studying something that, um, you know, I was good at and, you know, started making dean's list and having a high GPA and my plan was working. But then along the way, I was introduced to FanDuel and DraftKings, which were these new businesses that were really starting to gain mainstream attention back in, you know, 2013, 2014, when I was starting school. And I thought that those companies had amazing ideas, right? Like I was like, as a kid, my favorite hobby was season long fantasy sports, and they essentially introduced instant gratification to make that consumer experience orders of magnitude more engaging. And, but I thought that their product experiences were too complicated and intimidating for normal, mainstream, casual sports fans. So I started DraftPod initially as kind of like a project. I thought, you know, it could be a good thing to do something a little bit entrepreneurial on the side. And I had a lot of belief in, in the need for a casual fan focused daily fantasy product. And the more that I got into building it and marketing it and getting users and generating revenue, I just became addicted to it. There, there's nothing better than um, just building something. And I remember, like, so my strategy, as I alluded to a couple minutes ago, was like, get into this Ivy League school, get a really high GPA, make Dean's List every you know semester and just keep going. And I did that freshman year, but then sophomore year, when I was really going after the project in earnest, I found myself just, I found myself just not going, like I couldn't go to class. Like I was so, like I missed like, I missed like a final exam because I had an investor meeting that like I just had to take and it didn't even cross my mind to like take the exam and, you know, my GPA ended up plummeting and um, it was just, uh, it just my, it, it, my point is it wasn't like super deliberate. It just kind of happened as I went along the ride. and. Pretty much ever since then, I've been, you know, now I've founded three businesses and uh, the second and third of which have, you know, really, you know, taken off and, and, but I, it's been a w one decade long journey of essentially just trying to solve the same problem of, of building the category defining consumer product experience for a mainstream casual sports fan to enhance their consumption of sports. So on the, on the first attempt with a draft bot, you know, you ended up, it became evident. I mean, as you were saying, you know, you had investor meetings, you had the exams, so you had to prioritize, you know, the business building. So eventually, you know, you decided to drop out. I'm sure that your parents were very excited with that. 
and uh, you drop Actually, out. They, they and... thought I was a moron. Yeah, they literally <laughs> called me a moron. So, um, so, yeah. so, so, so obviously you drop out. But then you know, like with Dropout, you know, obviously there was like a bunch of stuff, you know, that uh, that ended up unfolding, and you end up exiting the business. So, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot happened there. We uh, we launched, uh, you know, like an alpha beta product in early of 2015. And, um, and then over the course of the spring and the summer, we made a lot of progress on the product and uh, started acquiring customers and things were generally going pretty well. And there was a lot of growth happening in the daily fantasy sports sector during the first half of 2015. So, you know, our strategy was to really invest in growing during the upcoming football season in 2015. Um, so we did things like overlay some contests so that our guaranteed prize pools were six figures, which we thought was table stakes if we were going to be competitive in the category. And, you know, we, we did, we just didn't raise enough money to support that strategy. But our, but our thinking was if we showed growth, then we could go out and raise a series A to fund that additional growth and then do a series B and series C and beyond just given, you know, ultimately, we all thought that the LTV of these consumers would be really high. So the investment in upfront customer acquisition, particularly behind a differentiated product experience would ultimately be have, you know, proof to be fruitful. And it was working to, to some extent. Um, and this is generally the strategy that DraftKings deployed when they you know, FanDuel was founded in 2009, 2009 or 2010. DraftKings came two and a half, three years later, and they ended up blowing past them in the daily fantasy sports sector because they had this more aggressive strategy around overlays and um, and uh, customer acquisition. So we were trying to replicate that a little bit with a differentiated product approach. And, and um, you know, but ultimately, I don't know if you recall, but in like October of 2015, there was like this insider trading scandal between like a DraftKings employee on FanDuel. And that led to a whole slew of um, like cease and desist letters that came to all the operators in the category. And the New York attorney general at the time, Eric Schneiderman led this like weird crusade against daily fantasy sports, claiming it as being illegal gambling. And um, it basically crippled the industry from late 2015, essentially almost, pretty much until the repeal of PASPA, which lifted the federal ban on sports betting uh, in May of 2018. So it was a years long, you know, sort of industry paralyzing predicament. And we were just way more aggressive than we should have been with our customer acquisition budget with our pretty, you know, immaterial $2 million seed round or, or whatever it was we exactly raised at the time. And we just couldn't survive that. And there were some other smaller companies in the space, so very small amount. I think a couple that were able to survive that, they were a lot more um, disciplined and resourceful than we were. And, um, you know, and, and we exited the business in a way that wasn't like a, you know, super positive financial outcome by any means. But yeah, um, it was, uh, it was a tremendous learning experience and made a ton of mistakes that I you know, and, and, you know, have, have learned from and, but that business was ultimately the inspiration for what became simple bet. And, um, because I started draft pot with this, I, as I alluded to thinking that the daily fantasy sports product experience was too complicated for 
a casual sports fan. You have like this lobby of hundreds of GPPs, you call them, these guaranteed prize pools. And then you enter the guaranteed prize pool and you try to create these fantasy lineups against arbitrary salary caps. And it, you know, the quantitatively savvy users were taking everybody else's money. And um, so it was a, it was a it was a clunky intimidating complicated product experience but through that experience i was introduced to traditional sports betting and when i first tried to bet on sports um i saw what essentially was an uninterpretable spreadsheet so the product experience around traditional sports book back then in like 2016 and still to this day quite literally looks and feels like a spreadsheet if you go on these other companies uh you know desktop sites or, or mobile apps. But then you also see things like minus 175 money line plus five and a half point spread. And I remember thinking to myself when I first um, when I first tried to like bet on the Dolphins to beat the Jets minus 175 money line, like I had no idea what that meant. Like it wasn't intuitive to me that my, minus 175 meant to bet 175 to win $100 or plus 200 bet, you know, for every $100 you bet you win 200 if, if, if you're successful in that outcome. So I started forming this vision that kind of like what Robinhood did to day trading, like E-Trade, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, et cetera, built really robust product experiences around power users in the day trading segment. But Regular casual people weren't buying and selling stocks and day trading until Robinhood came around. And obviously, they had business model innovation through the zero commission trading model. But I think it was really the simple, intuitive nature of their UI UX that enabled them to capture a lot of incremental TAM and bring a lot of new people to the day trading category. And, um, and I felt like back in 2016, when I first stumbled upon traditional sportsbook, that the same thing was going to happen in this category or needed to happen in this category. And the data today shows that. I mean, FanDuel and DraftKings are $20 billion and $10 billion businesses, respectively. But they only have about 1.5 to 3 million monthly active users, depending upon the quarter, which is a lot for real money gaming. And it's informing really large, um, you know, is profitable businesses, you know, FanDuel's already profitable and, and DraftKings is, is, is on a path to profitability. I mean, FanDuel did $3 billion in revenue last year. I mean, they're rapidly growing on a path to $10 billion in annual revenue. But 3 million MAUs, which is what they're peaking at, is not a lot when you consider that there's 100 million gambling aid sports fans that they're already in front of, and, there will be, and they will be in front of about 200 million gambling aid sports fans at maturity. So, and they certainly don't have a brand awareness problem. They, they quite literally advertise like car insurance companies, except they're perhaps not as, as funny in the marketing. I, I think there's a product problem where the experiences that are out in the marketplace back in 2016 and still today are, are built for the hardcore gambler and sports and, and sports better that's been doing it for a long time with these offshore books. But I think the more interesting opportunity is to build a product experience that really is simple, intuitive, engaging, entertaining for the casual sports fan who is betting on sports for the for what sports betting should all be about, which is enhancing your consumption of sports and being all about entertainment value. So I started Simple Bet with that vision. Uh, started it as a project in Eastern Europe because there wasn't any legal sports betting at the time in, in, in the United States back in 2016. 
realized along the way, like even if it wasn't legal in the US, I needed to headquarter the business in the United States. This would be far more successful as like a US-based venture-backed business, which is you know what what DraftPot was. So we incorporated the company in New York in in April of 2018, and you know sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart because literally six weeks later, the Supreme Court repealed the federal ban on on sports betting. Um, and that didn't result in like sports betting being legal everywhere right away. But um, it basically said that it was unconstitutional of the federal government to not allow states to go ahead and legalize sports betting and pass legislation to do so and codify their own regulatory frameworks. Um, and what what since happened is a, a, a very aggressive proliferation of sports betting in this country. I, I think we're already at you know, over 30 states that have passed legislation for sports betting just in the span of literally five years. The anniversary of SCOTUS repealing PASPA was about 10 days ago. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves just like 1x.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash dealmakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers. So go get your own domain. And I guess in this in this regard, you know, for Simple Bet, you know, because obviously this was the segue into better, what ended up happening with Simple Bet that, you know, landed you guys, you know, pushing better? Sure. Um, so like I said, I started... I started SimpleBet um, to initially go after this direct-to-consumer product vision and literally called the company SimpleBet because it was all about simplifying the betting experience. When PASPA was repealed, we decided to focus exclusively on U.S. sports. So we started designing the simple user experiences around U.S. sports. And specifically, we were interested in offering experiences around things like What's going to happen in the next pitcher at bat of a baseball game? Will it be a ball strike in play? Will the at bat be a single, double, triple, home run, strikeout, walk other? Um, NFL is king, right? Play-by-play -play betting seemed like an obvious thing that needed to exist. Will the next play of a football game be a pass or a run? Will it be a first down or not? Will the drive result in a touchdown, field goal, punt, or turnover? So we started designing these product experiences, and then we went to the B2B technology companies like Sport Radar, um, you know, Bet Genius, Stats and Perform, who were two separate businesses at the time. And we realized the extent to which pretty much none of these companies offered really robust technical infrastructure to enable 
micro betting on U.S. sports, which is ultimately the play-by-play stuff that I just alluded to, but really a lot of other forms of like in-play betting around U.S. sports and, and just bespoke forms of betting content for U.S. sports. And it made a lot of sense why they didn't do it because before PASPA was repealed, the global marketplace was driven predominantly by soccer. And if you think of the cadence and composition of a soccer game, it's a very different product experience than or a different consumption experience than baseball, which is pitches and at bats, NFL plays and drives. Soccer is a fluid game without any discrete moments, without a lot of scoring. And the U.S. sports are just the opposite. So we realized at Simple Bet the sort of holy shit moment for us was there, there was a lot of opportunity to build the requisite technical infrastructure to enable micro betting on U.S. sports, other forms of betting that were bespoke to U.S. sports that maybe didn't make as much sense for soccer. So we went down this path of building a lot of machine learning and automation infrastructure to enable this to exist. And then along the way, it became very apparent to us that that was a wholly separate business of just building the product and technology. And so we decided to license it as a B2B technology provider and companies like DraftKings and Caesars and Bet365. And this week, they you know, we, they had announced Hard Rock as a partner and, um, and it's becoming ubiquitous. The technology to enable micro betting around us sports powered by simple bet is becoming ubiquitous in the marketplace. And it's become a, you know, a really thriving, successful business, perhaps the fastest growing, most exciting B2B technology company in the U S online sports betting market today. But the problem is by licensing technology as a backend technology supplier to other operators, we have at Simple Bet, we had no control over the front end consumer experience, which I thought was the most limiting factor to the mainstream adoption of sports betting to begin with. That's why I got involved in all of this almost a decade ago. And I, I just candidly, as a founder who like started to do this consumer thing, and then we sort of inadvertently built this B2B technology business, I just I kind of I kind of hated it, the lack of control and ability to execute against my product vision. So ultimately, the most creative solution, because SimpleBet couldn't do it itself, because then its B2B customers would just tell us to fuck off, right? We would be competing with them. So what we ultimately decided to do is I was going to spin out um, a new entity, which is what better is, gave SimpleBet 25% in exchange for a long-term license to the technology at most favored nation rates. And then the other 75% uh, split evenly between myself as the founder, CEO of the business. And I brought in Jake Paul, who uh, I had formed a relationship with over the past few years, who um, you know, is, is likely, I would say, the world's most famous athlete influencer at this point. Um, and really a content creation genius and somebody perfect to build this media business alongside the gaming business that I'm focused on. And how did you guys meet, Joey? Yeah, in terms of, uh, in terms of how we met, um, I actually went to a dinner here in Miami and ended up sitting next to uh, this guy, Jeff Wu, who runs, uh, he recently co-founded Anti-Fund with, with Jake. Um, and they were doing a lot of venture investing, but they were interested in doing company incubation. And, and you know, this was also around the time that like Barstool Penn was really taking off in the stock market. And Jake saw what Dave Portnoy and Barstool were accomplishing and thought that he could, given his unique vantage point as, a, as an influencer, but also a, a world-class athlete himself, he could go after that opportunity. And um, 
and 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 that was actually around the time that I was thinking through the mechanics of how to spin out the consumer opportunity from SimpleBet in a way that made sense because you know we could have this as you could probably tell from from my bio and and background I have a lot of opinions and insights and conviction behind my product vision but this category is full of you know nearly a dozen multi-billion dollar enterprise value incumbents with hundreds of millions of dollars or even in many in some cases billions of dollars on their balance sheet and customer acquisition is incredibly expensive in this in this space and the biggest question i always got in terms of thinking through the consumer opportunity was you could build this amazing product but how are you going to acquire customers how are you going to compete in a market where FanDuel and DraftKings are literally giving users hundreds to thousands of dollars in free bets and bonus bets to their customers how are you going to compete against that and you know i always thought that if you build a great product there's going to be a lot of organic growth alongside it and you know I have had enough of a background at that point where I could still go out and raise capital and, you know, try innovative ways to acquire customers. But a material step change in the customer acquisition approach would be, what if we built like a bonafide media business from the ground up with Jake and his 70 million or so social media audience as an initial catalyst to bring some brand awareness, but most importantly, to build a content creation engine that establishes brand affinity with our audience at a grassroots level and then sort of goes up from from there um so that's what we so so that's kind of how we met and we started speaking about this for several months and ultimately decided to do this thing together amazing and now you know for 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 the people that are listening to i mean you guys have raised quite a bit of money in fact you guys skipped the seed round and you went straight into the series a and it was quite a Quite a series, A. Eh? So how much capital have you guys raised to date and why did you skip the seed round? In terms of like raising 50 to start it, it's funny because like by conventional standards, and I know you, you know, sort of interview and interact with many entrepreneurs and investors. And when you initially come across, they skipped a seed round and they went straight to a $50 million series, A, eh? And like, that's crazy, you know, but the truth is in this category, just to give you some specific context, our, our first market where we launched Real Money Gaming in was was Ohio on January first, which was the universal start date in that state. And just in just in January, just in Ohio, just FanDuel and DraftKings combined for more than three times our entire equity financing, just on bonus credits to consumers in that state in that month. Just those two companies. And that doesn't even include the paid UA around like television advertisements and, um, and uh, you know, billboards and everything else we're doing. So my point is 50 million sounds like a lot for a Series A, but it's a, it's a pimple on an elephant's ass in this category. It's nothing. And I think the, the correct question is, are you capable of, dis- of being a disruptor brand in online sports betting and casino in the United States as a consumer company? with only $50 million Series A? That's the correct question. So because we're building this media business without a lot of investment because of Jake and some of the really talented emerging content creators we've surrounded him with and the executive team that we've surrounded him with, 
um, who are really experts in production and content development and, you know, original short form content and, and all of that. Because of that, we had this thesis that 50 million would be enough to get our gaming business off the ground and um, to prove concept that we can consistently and scalably take our media audience to product and acquire them for low to no CAC. And that validation combined with, you know, being commercial in a few other areas on the real money gaming side, which, you know, we're, we, I, I, I can comment on in, in a couple months, you'll, you'll see some news about it, um, could get us to profitability or at least close to profitability. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we'll be able to sit here with a straight face 18 months from now and Better will have by far the best unit economics in the online sports betting and casino category in the United States. And then I'm going to go out and, you know, put a couple hundred million dollars to work in this thing and really start playing the market share game. But 50 million, my point is 50 million is, is what we thought um, would be required to get to that point of being able to validate that we have really off offered a differentiated product experience and a differentiated business model that results in the best unit economics in this category, specifically initially with respect to low to no CAC. I think LTV will catch up over time as we really enhance the product experience. Um, and we recently acquired a company a couple of weeks ago to get us from a V0 product experience to a V1 product experience to really increase LTV. Um, but a very long-winded answer of, of sort of why we went with 50. And, um, you know, in terms of the capabilities of, of, of raising that, I mean, we, you know, Simple Bet has become a ninth, you know, figure valuation asset within a relatively short period of time. I think investors appreciated that, you know, I've been going after the same problem for a really long period of time. And, you know, I started finally seeing some real market validation that I'm right on the on the product vision side we're so certainly nowhere near where we want to be or need to be but there's some initial you know substantial indications that i i think we are right so talking about that joey real quick talking about being right so and also talking about the investors and the vision that uh, that you shared with them imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of better is fully realized what does that world look like FanDuel and DraftKings, as i said are 20 and 10 billion dollar enterprise value businesses, respectively. But if you stack up their monthly active users against the amount of gambling aid sports fans that they're currently in front of, they have about two to 3% market penetration. And then if you compare that with sort of, you know, where they ultimately will be in front of, it's, it's even lower than that. So I used the Robin Hood analogy earlier, but I think this business, if we're right, will be a lot bigger than Robinhood because while R Robinhood has executed really well in sort of building this mainstream day trading product experience, day trading is limited to day trading, right? You're buying and selling a finite amount of public equities. But here, we're turning every moment and an infinite combination of moments and outcomes into a, a, a wide variety of different real money gaming opportunities. There's a far greater amount of engagement touch points that better can offer to consumers on the real money gaming side um, than, um, you know, like a Robinhood, for example. So if we're successful on the incremental TAM front, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying all of the, you know, call it 97 million or so gambling age sports fans that FanDuel has not acquired yet. I'm not saying all of them can or should gamble, 
but let's say there's 10 million, 20 million MAUs that we could capture by, by having this incremental TAM approach. I mean, I don't want to like be, I don't want to be exhibit too much hyperbole here, but you could do the math in terms of what the enterprise value of the opportunity could be. Definitely a lot of, a, a lot of zeros. Yeah, there's a uh, lot. Correct. I mean, I oh, mean yeah. it, you know, it's a, it, it's at least a, a $10 billion plus opportunity, yeah. particularly when you consider there's a lot of embedded asset value through this bonafide media business that we're building that we that we think will actually generate cash independently of of, of the gaming business over time because we're monetizing the media company directly. Celsius Energy Drink has signed up as a sponsor, for example. There's um, there. You know, I, I think this could be at least a $10 billion opportunity if, if we're right, and but it's going to require stellar execution along the way because this is indeed a series of David versus Goliath matchups for us. Nice. Now, let's talk about the past, but you know, being able to do so with a, with a lens of reflection here. Imagine you were to, let's say, go back in time. You know, I put you into a time machine. I mean, it's incredible that you've been able to target you know, this problem from so many different angles for for all these years. But let's say, you know, I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you are a sophomore in Colombia. You're wondering how the hell do you tackle, you know, like this, this, this problem? How how do you launch your your company, your baby? So let's say you're able to have a chat with that younger Joey and you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? When I initially... Like I would say, like because I I reflected on the th five year anniversary of of uh, Simple Bet recently, actually, because we formally incorporated the company about five years ago, and and the three things that I sort of came to were, and these are I would say the three most important things, and there's a lot of other things, but I think it goes into th these three buckets to be a successful entrepreneur, or at least an entrepreneur with an opportunity to be successful in order of least to most important. So so you got to be smart enough to identify opportunities before they become obvious to others. I think that's table stakes to really drive innovation and, and value creation in, in what we're doing here. The second thing is be humble enough to admit to and learn from mistakes. Um, I would say this is something that initially I really struggled with when I was younger, right? Like when you're going through school, whether it's high school and you're graduating at the top of your class and then you go through college and you're like trained to like read something, do an exam, get 99% and like get a pat on the back. And it's like, there, there's really this like fear of failure almost that's kind of like ingrained in like all the work you do as like a high school and college student. And the fear of failure, what, what ends up happening is when you do actually inevitably make mistakes as an entrepreneur along the way, you struggle to identify that those things were mistakes and admit to those mistakes. And then you let your ego get in the way and it becomes like a fucking disaster. Right. And that happened to me early on. And, um, and it's, uh, I, I, I think like Jeff Bezos has a really good quote about this where he says, you got to be stubborn on the vision, but flexible on the details, right? As you figure out the details along the way, you're inevitably going to make mistakes, but don't let any one thing, um, be like the hill you die on. Like if you made a product decision and you had a lot of conviction behind it, but then ultimately along the way, it like the marketplace is screaming at you that you're wrong about this, or you're, you think you're acquiring customers well, but then you realize you're acquiring a bunch of like low quality customers. It's way better to be open to admitting with a quarter or two of data that, Hey, wait a minute, like I'm wrong about this. 
right? And I'm not going to let this be the hill that I die on. I, I don't have a problem telling myself and my team that I was wrong about it. I admit to the mistake, let's learn from it and get better going forward. We, we still think our vision is correct. So I'd say that's the second thing, being humble enough to admit to and learn from mistakes. And then the third thing, which is something that, you know, has, has never really been a problem for me, but I think is, is ultimately the, the most important thing is being sufficiently determined, being determined enough to never give up and find a way to win. There's going to be hundreds to thousands of different things along the way that are going to be thrown at you that you didn't even know existed or you didn't even, you don't know what these things are going to be. And they're going to test your, your, your willingness to, to push through it and problem solve and get to the next level. And um, I think that's the most important thing. So I guess a long-winded way of answering your question of if, if I could go back, I, maybe I would sort of say some of what I just said to my younger self because, you know, I, I, I'd never really struggled with points one and three, but I think I a, a little certainly struggled with number two and I could have avoided a lot of um, issues if, if uh, you know, I, I really took that to heart at the time. I hear you. I hear you. And also for the people that are listening, uh, you also have put together a fund. You know, you have AUM, about 15 million there with other founders to invest in other founders. But for the founders that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so, Joey? At Joey S. Levy on, on Twitter and uh, same on Instagram. And um, yeah, my email address is just my first stop, my last name at, at better.app. So pretty responsive. Amazing. You know, try to check most of, of what we get in, but um, but um, yeah, always uh, interested in in uh, you know learning more about uh, what what other founders are are working on. Obviously, within reason, we're incredibly busy here at at, at Better, and it's twenty four seven hand to hand combat here. But um, I have been fortunate enough to to help support some of the best entrepreneurs at the earliest parts of their journey through through the venture fund that I I've been investing out of. Amazing. Well, hey, Joey, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.